Good morning, Church of the City. Today I'm going to be reading Matthew 5, verse 1 to 8. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Well, I'm back. Thanks to Lane for reading our scripture this morning. Uh, let's, let's jump right in. It's interesting, or it has been interesting for me as I've been preparing for these messages in this Beatitudes series, because every commentator that writes about the Beatitudes kind of takes a different approach in terms of uh, how the Beatitudes ought to be grouped together or structured, or they'll often come up with their own sort of unique outline for how we might kind of view the flow of the Beatitudes. It generally doesn't change the way that we interpret them or, or apply them to our lives, but one sort of interesting note for this morning uh, from one commentator. So Martin Lloyd-Jones proposes that the first three Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, are working towards sort of this hinge in the Beatitudes, the hinge being blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, which I talked about this a, a, a few weeks ago. And it's sort of this uh, gradual breakdown of our self-reliance until we get to this point where we realize that um, we need something outside of ourselves to, to fill us. And then he proposes that the next three Beatitudes are kind of a, a building back up, if you will. But he actually takes it a step further, and here's what I thought was interesting for us this morning. He makes this proposal that on either side of that hinge uh, of blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, you can almost match, pair the Beatitudes up. So, for example, Matt talked last week about blessed are the merciful, and Martin Lloyd-Jones makes this point that it's when we have a true poverty of spirit, when we, just, when we recognize just how poor in spirit we are and how in need of God's mercy we are, that we're then, uh, we begin to be able to be merciful to the people around us. Matt talked about this last week. Similarly then, for this morning, it's when we truly and deeply find ourselves mourning the sin in the world and the sin in us and the Spirit is doing a work in us, it's then that we're actually moving towards spiritual purity. So I just thought that was interesting. Um, you may or may not find that as interesting as I do. I, I guess that's maybe one of those Bible nerd kind of moments. But with that, um, we're going to begin, as Matt uh, always does, with a pause. And uh, as we do this, I would um, invite you to quiet your heart and mind as, you're, as much as you're able and invite uh, the Holy Spirit into whatever place you're in this morning. Um, he, I believe that he wants to be uh, present with you in that space. So uh, let's do that, and then we will continue on looking at um, our beatitude this morning.
Okay. Let's jump in here. Let's begin to break this down a little bit. Now, again, Matt, uh, everyone who's taught, as we've kind of articulated what this idea of blessed means, so we don't need to spend a lot of time here. Again, just quickly, it's not a superficial feeling based on uh, present circumstances, but it's a deep contentment based on a right relationship with God. And so, Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. So we're going to jump to heart and try and understand what the scriptures mean when they talk about our hearts. Uh, So then we can understand what it is that Jesus wants to be pure, okay? So the heart, we often use the heart, and Matt's talked about this before, to refer to emotions or feelings. You know, think about someone saying, "Just, just speak from your heart. That's often an encouragement to just say how you're feeling. In scripture, though, the heart generally refers to our, our whole inner self. And so this includes our emotions for sure, but it goes beyond that as well. It includes our thoughts and our will uh, as well. Martin Lloyd-Jones um, defines it this way. He says, the heart is the center of man's being and personality. It's the fount out of which everything else comes. It includes the mind. It includes the will. It includes the heart, or what we would often use as the heart, right? That idea of emotions or feelings. It's the total man, and that is the thing which our Lord emphasizes. Okay, so if that's the heart, before we move on, we might ask the question, what do we know about the heart from Scripture? Let me give you a a couple passages to, to think about that might paint a bit of a picture for us. You'll see these on the screen. First is Psalm 14, verses 1 to 3. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They've all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one bit of a bleak picture, isn't it? One more for you. Much shorter, but equally as compelling. I think Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So in other words, friends, if we were to summarize our understanding of the heart, Scripture uses the heart to refer to our inner self, which and its natural state is in opposition to God and his ways. So let's move on and think about pure. So Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. So if this is our understanding of heart, what does it mean to be pure? And then we can begin to put these things together. Well, again, we would use the word pure in a number of different ways. For example, we might use the term purify or, you know, making something pure to, to convey the idea of cleaning something, right? Think about our present reality of COVID-19. If you needed to purify the air in a room, for example, right, that, that's the idea of cleaning uh, the air. Or we might use it in a way that's trying to convey uh, the, the state of being undivided, right? Wholly made of something or or wholly purposed for one thing, right? It's pure. 
Similarly, a, a, a definitely a related idea, we would often use uh, the word pure to talk about um, substances like, like metals that are refined and made more valuable. And I think that there's a sense, there, there definitely is a sense in which all of these are captured as scripture uses the word pure. But on the other hand, we can also simplify it down quite a bit. And in this moment and often in scripture, the word pure or this, this term is really being used simply to convey being made or being clean in the eyes of God. Pure can, can really simply mean being clean in the eyes of God. Now, if you've spent much time in the scriptures, when you hear me say that phrase, being clean in the eyes of God, your mind may very well go to the Old Testament, to books like Leviticus that talk so much about clean and unclean. Let me give you an example. This is from uh, Leviticus chapter 14, verse 8. And these are instructions for someone who has been healed uh, from a skin disease. Okay, here's what it says. And he who is to be cleansed shall wash his clothes and shave off all his hair and bathe himself in water and he shall be clean. And after that, he may come into the camp, but live outside his tent seven days. Now, this is certainly contained within this theme or, or concept of purity, okay? These, these sorts of passages. But it's, we would probably be a little more specific and say that what's talked about here is really ritualistic or ceremonial purity, okay? We want to be a little more specific with what's being talked about here. And as we saw in that passage I just read from Leviticus, there are definitely elements contained within that of physical cleanliness, right? It, we would just understand that it makes sense to clean yourself quite well if you've just recovered from a skin disease to ensure that that doesn't come back or that you don't infect someone else, right? Like that makes sense. But generally speaking, in the Old Testament as we read this, it's, it's a, a ceremonial sort of process, And the idea was, or the goal, was to allow the people of Israel to have physical access or or proximity to God. First through the tabernacle there in the camp of the, the people of Israel, and then later on through the temple. The challenge or the problem was this, friends. Israel, over time, slowly forgot that these outward expressions of purity were always meant to be mirrored by the condition of their hearts. That that just as they would remove obstacles to God's presence being there in the camp, so too they were to remove obstacles to his work in their hearts as well. And this, this problem, this separation of these two ideas of of outward cleanliness or purity and the condition of our hearts, that problem got worse and worse and was certainly around in Jesus' day as well. And he confronted it at times quite head-on and forcefully. Let me give you one example. Mark chapter 7 verses 1 to 7. You'll see these verses on the screen. It's a little bit of a long passage, but it, it illustrates this quite well. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now, notice there in verse 3 that we're about to read, 
that it, there's a parenthesis at the beginning. I always love it when the gospel writers do this because it's like, it's like they, wanna, uh, they want us to know that they're giving us special insight into something. So let's read. Verse 3 says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. There's the end of uh, Mark's parenthetical note for us. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, that is Jesus, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart, their heart, is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. See, Jesus here is calling out the fact that the Pharisees, really two things, that, that they've, over the years and over the generations, different uh, leaders in the Jewish community gave uh, sort of extra guidelines around the law that Moses gave. Guidelines that, you know, maybe at, at times were meant to uh, help the people in, in fulfilling the law or in being obedient to it, but over time became just onerous and a burden, and yet that's what they repeatedly emphasize. And Jesus is pointing out, as we just, as we already said, this problem of overemphasizing external purity and forgetting about the condition of their hearts. So this was clearly a shot across the bow for the Pharisees, but it also challenges modern religious sensibilities as well, doesn't it? All religions are really, apart from Christianity, premised on this goal of making oneself right with God. And most generally suggest doing that in one of two ways. Either through right knowledge, in other words, acquire the right religious knowledge or say the right creeds and you'll save yourself. Or through right action do and don't do the, you know, do the right things, don't do the wrong things, and you will earn your salvation. But the gospel of the kingdom taught by Jesus presents a clear counter to human religion. The, the condition of your heart is what determines your standing before God, not what you know or how well you live. It's not that those things don't matter, that we don't try and learn more about God who he is, who we are in light of that. It's not that we don't try and live in light of God's will. You know, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But Jesus was teaching that before all that comes the condition of our hearts. And so, friends, this, this brings us to a bit of a problem. <laughs> the problem is this. See, Jesus says that the pure in heart will see God. But we clarified a few minutes ago that scripture points to the human heart as fundamentally opposed to God and his ways. In other words, our hearts are fundamentally impure and we're unable to fix that, to remedy that situation ourselves. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way, something that I think we all 
if you've lived any number of years, you begin to understand. You can start trying to clean your own heart, but at the end of your long life, it'll be as black as it was at the beginning, perhaps blacker. Let me give you a little story that might illustrate this uh, for us a little bit. I, a number of years ago, three or four years ago now, uh, participated in one of those sort of uh, adventure, obstacle sort of races. Um, There's many different versions of these. The one that I participated in was called the Tough Mudder, okay? And there were different distances you could run. Our group, you know, decided to to, uh, be reasonable and just do the 5K version. But you run it, and there's all kinds of obstacles along the way. And uh, you won't be surprised to hear, based on the name, that uh, through the course of this race, you get absolutely covered in mud and dirt and grime. Up here on the screen, you'll see a picture of my team at the end of the race. And yes, we were quite muddy. The funny thing is, I didn't realize this until I got there. Um, Thousands of people run this race. There are multiple locations when, you know, during a summer where they can run these. They'll have multiple locations all over North America. And just at the one that I was at, there was literally thousands of people running that race that day. And so at the end, you, if you want, you queue up for these um, sort of uh, glorified sprinkler shower things. Um, and you can you sort, of, sort of just picture like this, uh, this trellis or network of PVC with with holes drilled into it, okay? And so you wait in this long line, and when you finally get uh, under one of these showers, it's uh, it's a trickle, okay? And I was so caked in mud, as you probably saw from that picture, um, that I found myself completely unable to make a dent in how dirty and mud-covered I was. You know, I, I tried for a little bit not making any progress. I thought, oh, I'll get out my towel and kind of use my towel to scrub myself. But quickly, my towel was just covered in mud as well. And so I realized that I was kind of out of luck and I saw people behind me angry that I was uh, taking too long. So I eventually just gave up and decided, okay, when I get back to my car, I'll just try and change my clothes. And, uh, you know, when I get home, I'll, I'll uh, take a shower because there was nothing I could do. And this is the condition that we are in, friends in our natural state, despite our best efforts, there's really not much we can do. And so where does this leave us? I, to illustrate where we go from here or, or an answer to this problem, I want us to go back to a story that we've actually looked at multiple times through the course of uh, this series. I think Dave looked at it first. It's Isaiah chapter 6. I think Dave looked at it first and then I visited it the last time I taught, but we're going to go back there. So just a reminder, since we've heard it a few times recently, I, the prophet Isaiah has this vision in which he is brought into God's presence. And when he realizes God, the fullness of God's holiness and his purity, it leads him to mourn. He realizes just how unclean he is and the people among whom he dwells, how unclean they are. But then this strange being called the seraphim brings a coal from the altar and touches Isaiah's lips. In verse 7 of Isaiah 6 says, He touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Now, despite just 
the all-around strangeness of this whole passage, this whole vision that Isaiah has. There's something particularly surprising about what happens here. This is, in some ways, a brand new moment. Because Israel, Israel's understanding for, for generations had been that when an unclean object and a clean object come into contact, they're both made unclean. That's why, as we talked about back in Leviticus, there are so many different laws around the Israelites avoiding contact with anything that will make them unclean. I mean, if we think about this just in sort of physical terms with purity, think about, uh, you know, contaminated water and, and clean water. If you mix those, you're not left with clean water, you're left with contaminated water. But in this story, we have something clean, something pure, coming into contact with something unclean, impure, Isaiah himself, and and cleansing him, making him pure. And friends, this is the answer, because this is the work that Jesus does for us. In some really beautiful ways, this idea this spiritual work that Jesus would do for us was foreshadowed in physical ways. One, one example, Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. It's interesting. This is sort of the first scene that we get after the Sermon on the Mount. Look how verse 1 opens. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him. Now, just context Again, if you've spent any time back in the Old Testament, like in books like Leviticus, a great deal of time is spent on the uncleanness of people with skin diseases, like leprosy. So this leper came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And friends, do not mistake, do not miss what Jesus does here. Verse 3, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. The clean, the pure, touching the unclean, the impure, and purifying it. And then, friends, this is fully realized, fully enacted, through Jesus' death and resurrection. And then so much time in the rest of the New Testament is spent reflecting on the magnitude of this. One example, Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 7. These are some of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. It says this, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. It's a pretty dark picture, isn't it? And if we were to to go back to our earlier definition that being pure is being clean in the eyes of God, this would certainly count as impure, I think. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, 
but according to his own mercy, and catch this, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This, friends, is the solution to the problem. That the pure in heart will see God, and yet we recognize that in our natural state, our hearts are fundamentally opposed to God, impure, and we can't fix that, but Jesus does the work on our behalf. The pure purifying the impure. And so what's the promise that Jesus makes? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Friends, isn't that what this is all about? If you're a follower of Jesus, isn't that what we live for? To be near to God? It's important to clarify that see, they shall see God, is not some sort of, you know, distant, vague, it's not the way that I once saw Katie Holmes at the airport. Like, I think that's Katie Holmes, a completely impersonal, uh, you know, vague sense of things. No, it's to experience personally. As much as finite creatures such as us ever will be able to. And so when we understand this, there's kind of this beautiful, beautiful irony that comes out of Jesus' statement here. He says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. But when we realize that our hearts have been purified from, by Jesus, by an encounter with Jesus, we realize then that we have seen God, that we have encountered God in the person of Jesus. As he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so too, we are seeing and experiencing God through, as Titus says, the Spirit poured out on us richly, dwelling in us. We are seeing God day by day, doing a work in us, and we will see God. There's this future reality that we wait for. Scripture describes this in a way that I, we would be remiss not to remind ourselves of this morning. So I'm going to read Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 4, but these verses won't be on the screen. I'd invite you if you're willing to actually close your eyes and just hear this, this passage read to you. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Hear this, friends. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Now, friends, there is so much more that could be said about the daily work of being purified or refined 
this work that we do in partnership with the Holy Spirit working in us. James says this so beautifully in, in his letter. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. There's so much more that we could say about this. But for this morning, if there were to be any application, this is it. This is just a starting point, but a valuable one, I think. If you're able to, find a quiet moment today or sometime this week and simply reflect on the fact that if you're a follower of Jesus... You can draw near to God. And if, I should say, friends, if you're not a follower of Jesus, all you need to do, as we have been talking about through this whole series, is say, I'm in need. I'm hungry to be right with God, to be right with the world around me, and, and God does it. He shows up. But take some time this week and reflect on that, that you, in all your shortcomings, your fears, your doubts, your brokenness, you can come into, are invited into the presence of God. Because, friends, that should overwhelm us. And so allow the Spirit to do that work in you again this week to remind you of just how Shocking and wonderful that is. Let us pray to close. I'm going to pray for us using Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19-23. Just keep your eyes closed and let me pray this over us. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Amen.